Gracious Heavenly Father, we ask now that by your Holy Spirit you would speak to us as we look at the Bible. And that as we reflect on what Jesus said on that night before he was betrayed, may we understand true certainty. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in this world, nothing can said to be certain except death and taxes. Well, that's what famous American Benjamin Franklin once said, and he does have a point, because we know for certain that we will die, unless, of course, Jesus comes back first. And we know for certain that we will pay taxes, unless, of course, you've got a creative accountant. But are these the only things in life that you can be certain about? Well, Jesus gives us something more. He tells us that we can have certainty for eternity if we trust in him. Certainty for eternity, no matter what happens in life. So let me ask you, do you have that certainty? Are you 100% sure that were you to die tonight, that Jesus would welcome you with open arms and say, well done, good and faithful servant, my child? Do you have that certainty? Because you can. And if you don't, listen up tonight, because I want to show you where you can find it. Jesus talks about certainty as he's addressing his disciples who are troubled. That's because he's spending the last night before his death with his closest mates, and he's just dropped them a bombshell. One of the 12 disciples has just left to betray Jesus to his enemies. And that's going to result in Jesus' brutal execution just within hours. Another one of the 12 disciples has been told that he is going to disown, that he's going to deny Jesus three times before the rooster crows, and that's going to happen within a matter of hours. And in the midst of all of that, we know that Jesus himself is troubled as well. In fact, we read last week from chapter 13, verse 21, Jesus was deeply troubled and he exclaimed, I tell you the truth, one of you will betray me. This non-anxious, calm leader is shaken to his core and all the disciples would have seen it on his face and heard it in his voice. And so you wonder, what hope is there for this Messiah who's on death row? And his 11 distressed disciples. Well, with that in mind, here is how Jesus begins tonight's passage. He says, don't let your hearts be troubled. It's a beautiful word of comfort, isn't it? Jesus, who himself is troubled, says to his disciples, you don't need to be troubled. Jesus says, do not be troubled. And I wonder how the disciples would have felt at that point. It's a bit like you've got this smoke-filled room and someone runs in and says, don't panic. And what's the first thing you feel like doing? Panicking, of course. So when you're full of grief and trouble, your soul is troubled and Jesus says, don't be troubled. It's like, well, I'm feeling pretty troubled right now. How would he make them actually feel that? How would he get rid of their troubles in that way? What would he say to them? Well, here's what he says. He says, trust in God and trust also in me. 
He tells them to trust God and to trust him, to trust Jesus. Don't be troubled, but trust. Can you think of a time when you've needed to really trust someone or maybe really trust something? Can you think of a time when you've needed to no longer be troubled, but instead to trust? Well, uh, Oscar and all those who are in Christian outdoor education regularly get the opportunity to show people what trust is really like. Uh, They take people to the top of a 10-metre abseiling tower and they put a helmet on them and a harness and some hardware and they connect up their rope, which is attached to something that is strong, and says, trust me. And often, as the person's about to be leaning backwards and going off that tall structure, they're scared. And they need to no longer be troubled, but to trust. And so how do you improve someone's trust at that point? Well, one of them is to say, did you know that this rope's so strong that it could hold a car? It's like, okay, well, I'm a bit lighter than a car. I should be okay. I just hope you've tied it up properly. (laughs) But what happens then is they get... They lower themselves down with the with the, um, uh, the all the abseiling stuff, and they get to the bottom, and they stand on the on the floor, and they go, ah, "I've now got to the very bottom." And they realise that their rope was trustworthy, as was all the gear, and that what they were told was enough to tell them not to be troubled. It's a powerful example of trust, and it's used so beautifully by places like YouthWorks, as they say, "How did you feel about being told to trust?" How do you feel now that you've gone through that experience? And they get a chance to debrief with them and, and in fact, bring in the gospel of Jesus at that point. It's really kind of cool, isn't it? And I wonder if you've had an experience, something like that, in your life, where you've had to get over your fears by trusting in a truth, when you've needed to overcome your fears by trusting in a truth. You know, it's safer to fly in a plane than it is to drive to the airport. And did you know that you're 30 times more likely to be killed by a falling coconut than a shark? Wow, you know, aren't you pleased you came to church, yeah? (laughs) Sometimes when you give information, you think, okay, that's all right. I'll avoid the coconuts and I'll go for a swim with the sharks and I should be fine. I know, Jody told me in church, no problems. You get the information and you think, I'm no longer going to feel troubles. Well, in this situation, Jesus wants the disciples to trust, to trust in God, to trust in him. And that is because the Father and the Son act as one. And we'll hear more of that in a moment. But Jesus gives the disciples at this point a word that that relieves even more of their troubles. He says in verse 2, There is more than enough room in my Father's home. If this were not so, would I have told you that I'm going to prepare a place for you? Jesus speaks about heaven as if it's a home, as if it's a house. And he basically says he's got to go there to prepare a place for them. And if you trust in Jesus, you will have a secure place. You will have security in heaven. Their ticket is guaranteed. Their seat is secure. A few years ago, uh, we were given, uh, Mandy and I were given a birthday gift of tickets to the musical Hamilton. And we received the email and we got the piece of paper. Uh, 
it was actually cancelled because of COVID and then it got rebooked and we, we turned up on the night and we had our, our ticket and it got scanned at the door. Bleep. It's pretty cool. And we sat down on the seat and we knew the show was a, a few minutes away and everything's fine. But then out of the corner of my eye, I could see some of the people who were the ushers sort of, you know, looking at the, looking at the piece of paper, the ticket that they've got, and pointing to our seats. They're thinking, I said, Mandy, avoid eye contact, avoid eye contact. <laughs> One minute till the curtain goes up, we'll be fine. Uh, our dear friends had, had used a, a ticket reselling company that um, is, is often fine, but perhaps wasn't in our case. Fortunately, there were two seats behind us, and so the two disaffected people were able to go and take a seat behind us, and everything was fine. We had a piece of paper that we thought gave us security and gave us certainty, but then when we actually sat in the seats, we realised that, well, it maybe wasn't quite as secure. And I wonder whether or not a bunch of people go through life thinking of heaven that way. You know, well, I think I've got a ticket and I think I'll be okay, and then they sit down and they're just not really sure. Jesus says, you can have certainty because he is going to prepare a place for you. That's what he says to the disciples. The thing is that when we trust in Jesus, heaven is certain. We need to trust in him. We need to believe in him. We need to have faith in him. That's what, that's what faith means. It means believing a promise. And his promise is, I'm going to prepare a place for you. That's what he said to the disciples. And so he's going to prepare it. What does that mean? It means he needs to leave. Jesus needed to leave. But he won't be gone for good because he says in verse 3, when everything's ready, I will come and get you so that you will always be with me where I am. The time's coming when everything's ready, everything's prepared, and he will return and come and get them. He'll take them to be with him. He is, in that sense, the advanced party. And the disciples need to let him go so that he can come back. So when exactly is that going to happen? How is it going to happen? What will the coming back be like? We've well, got to realise that the disciples haven't seen Jesus die yet or rise from the dead or ascend to heaven or have the gift of the Spirit. None of that's happened yet. So they're sort of looking forward now, we know we can look back and see all those things have happened. We are in the moment now where we are awaiting the next return of Jesus, when he will come to judge the living and the dead. And we know he will come back and he will take us who trust in Jesus to be with him. But even those disciples, they didn't quite understand a whole lot of these bits and pieces, but they were given enough that they were told what they needed to do, and that was to trust Jesus. He says, I'm going... I'll come back, trust in me. That is what faith looks like. Faith is about hearing a promise and believing it. Faith is about hearing what someone says is definitely going to happen and then saying, I trust you and I will act like it is true. That is what faith looks like. Jesus says, you've got to trust in God, you've got to trust in me, and that means I'm going to prepare a place and I'm coming back to get you. But first he says, where he's going, verse 4. He says, and you know the way to where I am going. He tells them, you know of my travel plans. You know where I'm going. 
And I wonder at that point that the disciples are kind of like looking to each other like, do you know? I don't know, I thought you knew. I don't know, you know? And one of them gets the courage and, and says, basically, well, he's the guy who's, who's famous in due course for being the doubting guy. He says, uh, no, we don't know, Lord, Thomas said. We've no idea where you're going. So how can we know the way? Is he speaking just for himself or is he speaking for all of them? Not sure. But he says, we, we don't know where you're going. We can't know the way. And so Jesus tells them. And he says this famous verse. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. Jesus gives them these famous words. And he tells them where he's going and where they need to go to follow him. And on this map, this map that has the Father and has the way, you can see here that there is only one way. There is only one route. And that only way is Jesus. He is the way. He is the truth. He is the life. He is making a very bold claim. He's saying there is no other way to God the Father except through Jesus. There is no other way to know the creator of the universe than through Jesus. Which I'm going to say is a pretty bold thing to say. You might even say it's an arrogant thing to say. Because what he's saying is any religion that exists at the time and any religion that someone's going to make up in the future, all of them are false. Islam, Judaism, Buddhism, Hinduism, New Age, you name it, none of them work. They are paths that lead off a cliff. See, Jesus is unashamedly exclusivist. He says, I am exclusively the way to the Father. Every other way is a dead end. It's not like people say, oh, it's a big mountain and it leads up to God and there are all these different ways. Jesus is saying, no, that is not true. All of them are false except for one. No one can come to the Father except through him. And look, a lot of people find this to be really difficult. I've preached on this passage many times in funerals because it's a really good funeral kind of passage. Do not let your hearts be troubled. You trust in God, trust in me. In my father's health, there are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I'm going to prepare a place for you? But if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me so you can always be where I am. You know the way the way that I'm going. See, that, this, is, this is the message. It's great, but then they say, where is the way? And he says, I am the way. No one comes to the Father except through me. Every other religion fails. And you know, some people say, well, look, the Jesus I believe in would never say that. To which I'd say, you've just invented another religion. You've created your own version of Jesus, Jesus 2.0. You've said, well, Jesus is kind of like so big and, and so wide and, and he just embraces everyone, even if they don't know him or don't want to know him. I just think the Jesus of my mind would be the Jesus who would embrace them. To which I'd say, you're just inventing stuff, mate. Uh, Jesus said something 
at a time in history, at a place in history, and he said, no one comes to the Father except through me, which is a really narrow-minded and arrogant thing to say, if it's not true. And if it is true, then it is the most loving thing that Jesus could possibly say. Because he's saying, you might sincerely believe that Islam is the way for you to have salvation. And you might practice it in a way that is far more fervent than I do. But in the end, you are wasting your time. Because Jesus, the one who created the universe, who is one with the Father, says, no one comes to us except through me. Which means that if you have a friend who believes that, if you yourself believe that, you know, that you can do anything as long as you're sincere, then I've got to tell you, you are mistaken and your friends are mistaken. And the most loving thing you can do is tell your friend they're wrong. And the most loving thing I can do to you is, if you believe that, is to tell you that you're wrong. Not so that I might push you down and make myself better, but that I might help you trust in Jesus so that you might have the certainty for eternity that cannot come only in him. But that's not the only thing that Jesus tells Thomas and the disciples. He says in verse 7, if you had really known me, Jesus says, if you'd really known me, you would know who my father is. From now on, you do know him and you have seen him. Jesus says a pretty intense thing. He says, you don't really know me. You don't really, really know me, do you? Because, you know, when you do know me, Jesus says, you know the father. You do know the Father. You've met the Father. And Jesus has revealed that they have an extraordinary bond. A bond that is stronger than the disciples ever imagined. And now they know. And hopefully all the disciples just get it. Except for Philip. He says, well, Lord, show us the Father and we will be satisfied. Philip realises, okay, Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life to the Father. Great. Show us the Father. Show us the Father. And if you do that, I'll actually be content, he says. But Jesus has a surprise for him and a bit of a rebuke. He says in verse 9, Have I been with you all this time, Philip, and yet you still don't know who I am? Anyone who's seen me has seen the Father. So why are you asking me to show him to you? Again, it's a bit awkward, isn't it? Must be. It's like, hey, I thought, we, I thought you knew me. You don't know me. Because if you really did know me, you'd know that as you see me, you see the Father. So why are you asking me to show him to you? Jesus is saying that when they've seen the Son, they've seen the Father, that the two are one, one and the same. Two different persons, but the same God. So when they saw the Father, they saw the Son. But how is this possible? Why is it the case that they're so close together, that when they see the Son, they see the Father? Well, Jesus asks them a question to reveal more about this connection. He says in verse 10, don't you believe that I, Jesus, am in the Father and the Father is in me? Don't you believe that? He asks that question which is also a statement. And it shows an extraordinary connection between the Father and the Son. 
at the very heart of Jesus, the very spirit of Jesus is the Father. The Father is in Jesus. The Father and the Son mutually indwell each other. Jesus lives in the Father. The Father lives in Jesus. And so in that sense, the two are one. Jesus and the Father are one. One flesh even, so to speak. And so it means that when you see Jesus, you see the Father. But more than that, when you hear Jesus, you hear the Father. Verse 10b, it says, The words I speak are not my own, but my Father who lives in me does his work through me. That is the depth of connection between Jesus and the Father, between the Son and the Father. What Jesus says is from the Father. God the Father is using Jesus to be his agent. Jesus is doing the Father's work. And so if you want to know the Father, you just got to know the Son. Because the two are one. Now I wonder if you've actually thought of Jesus quite this way before. Now I get it, the whole doctrine of the Trinity, you know, the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit, three persons, one God, it, it's, you, you think you've understood it and then you go, oh yeah, but what about that? You get a passage like this, you think, wow, this is an aspect of the relationship between the, the Father and the Son that is pretty, pretty in your face. That you see that they have such a deep connection that when you see Jesus, you see the Father. When you hear Jesus, you hear the Father. That's extraordinary. We, I think sometimes we, we almost see them as being really, really different and we give them such different characters. Uh, it's kind of like, you know, Jesus is the... He's the, the nice one. And, and then the father, he's kind of like the grumpy one. And, you know, he, he's the one that you've got to get, you know, ask Jesus if you want a favor and, and he'll speak to the father about it. And it's a bit, you know, and uh, hopefully they're on the, the, the same page at this point and we'll see what happens there. And we, we, I think we sometimes inadvertently just play them off against each other. We play the father off against the son. It's kind of a bit like how some kids try and do that with their parents. You know, one kid might say, Dad, can I invite my friend over to stay? Now, if that's ever happened to me, it never happened to me before. Um, I lie. I need to confess that to you. I've just lied to you that it has happened to me before. And my answer, I, I was trying to keep you guys secret, you know, but I just, I, you know. it was a long, long time ago. Not that long ago. <laughs> What do I say? I say, what did mum say? It's like, uh, well, she doesn't think it's a good idea. Okay, so why might you be asking me? Now, a long, long time ago when that used to happen, um, my kids would know that if they said that, that it would not end up well. To try and play off the father against against, against the mother, you know, in that sense. It doesn't end well. Mum and dad, we hunt in a pack, right? We are together on this stuff. But I wonder whether we do that a little bit, little bit with God sometimes. You know, oh, you know, Jesus and the Father, they're just so different to each other. And, and you know, well, I'm not sure if they're necessarily on the same page with all these sorts of things. I just think of them completely differently. But Jesus says, you see me, you see the Father. You hear me, you hear the Father. The two are one. And so what do they need to do with this information? How do we relate to Jesus properly? Well, this is what he said to the disciples. Just believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Just Believe that connectedness. Believe that tightness there. Believe that this man that you are having dinner with 
sitting there around the table, reclining on the ground, with all of this moment of, 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 of trouble that they're sharing, this deep, intimate moment, they're actually there with, with, with the Son of God, with the Son of Man. They are there in the presence of deity, of Godness, of God himself. And, in, and not just God, but God the Father. How do they get their head around that? They must have had their mind blown. Perhaps it's just a little too hard to believe at that moment. And so Jesus says, well, if you've got trouble believing that, well, he says, at least believe because of the work you have seen me do. If you just can't get your head around the fact that you're talking to me and I'm, I'm the Father, you know, I'm speaking and, and showing you the Father now. If you can't get your head around that, then remember the miracles. Remember that night we were at that wedding reception and embarrassingly they ran out of wine? Remember what I did? I turned the water into really, really good wine. Remember that? Yeah. And really old wine. Yeah. How, how do you do that? You can't do that. It's a miracle. Or, or maybe that time there was that guy who was born blind, had never ever seen anything in his life, and suddenly Jesus healed him and he was able to see. Remember that? And remember what, with the look on that guy's face when for the very first time he was able to see? You know, or, or that time when they're there with Lazarus. He's died four days in the tomb. And Jesus says, you know, well, you know, open up the tomb. And they say, don't do that. Well, at least put a peg on your nose because he's going to stink. His body's decaying. And he says, Lazarus, come out. And Lazarus comes out. Jesus is saying, if, if you've got trouble actually getting your head around the fact that I and the Father are one, and then when you see me, you see the Father, when you hear me, you hear the Father, if that's just too hard to get your head around, remember the wine. Remember the blind. Remember Lazarus. Get your head around that. Because when you saw me do those things, you saw that I was none other than God. So that should make this kind of, I and the Father are one thing, just a little bit easier to believe. But Jesus promises even more if we do in fact believe in him. He says, verse 12, he says to the disciples, I tell you the truth, anyone who believes in me will do the same works I have done and even greater works because I am going to be with the Father. Okay, so what is he saying there? Believe in Jesus, that he's truly the Son of God, that he's in the Father, the Father's in him. Believe in him and then you will do greater works than Jesus did. Greater works than raising people from the dead. Greater works than taking a kid's lunchbox and feeding 5,000 families. Greater things than walking on water. Greater things than healing a lame man. Greater things than these? You're saying that we will do these? How is this possible? What might these greater works be? Well, I think the answer is best understood when we see what the whole thing is that Jesus said. I tell you the truth, anyone who believes in me will do the same works I have done and even greater works because I am going to be with the Father. You'll do these greater works because I'm going away. See, the connection between the greater works and us is that we live in the time of the Spirit. We live in the time when you can say to somebody, you need to trust in Jesus and he will then forgive you your sins and you'll have certainty for eternity. And someone can listen to you and say, yeah, 
I'd like to do that. And right at that moment, they go from being in darkness to light. They go from hell to heaven. They go from enemy of Jesus to friend of Jesus, to son of God, to, son of, to, a, to, a, to a son of, of Jesus, right? It's extraordinary, the transformation. That is a greater thing than raising Lazarus from the dead. That is a greater thing than someone having their sight restored. To go from that transformation, is an, it is the greatest thing. You see, following Christ is the greatest moment. And so the greatest thing you can do is lead someone to follow Jesus. Because when they do, the greatest thing, the greatest moment happens. You know, you think about all your greatest moments in life. Was it something you did or someone you met or an achievement you made or a place you went to or a, whatever it is? If you're friends with Jesus, your greatest moment has got to be when I met Jesus. Now, some of you met Jesus when, when you were just a baby, as you were growing up in a, in a family that always knew and loved the Lord Jesus. How good is that? You've had even more time. But some of you, it was like, I know the moment, I know the time, I know where I was. Darkness to light. That is the greatest moment. And the greatest thing is when someone told you that. But then we see something else that's quite extraordinary. The final two verses before us. Jesus goes even a next step. He says, verse 13 and 14, You can ask for anything in my name, anything in my name, and I will do it, so that the Son can bring glory to the Father. Yes, Ask me for anything in my name, and I will do it. Now, if you didn't see things Jesus' way, you'd sort of think, ah, right, this is one of those things where it's like you get a lamp, and you rub it, and a genie comes out, and says, boom, okay, ask me three wishes, and they're yours. You think, oh, you little ripper, okay. Uh, can I be really, really rich? Sure, that's number one. Ding. Uh, number two, can you... Restore the health of all the sick people I know. Oh, done. Tick. What's the third one? Uh, can I have unlimited wishes? Okay. Tick. You think, is this exactly what's happening right at this moment? Is this what Jesus is saying? Well, Jesus is saying anything, isn't it? I mean, what do you do with that? Ask me anything. But if we're not careful, we might have missed exactly what it is truly saying. It's a reminder that we need to be very careful not to read the Bible literalistically because we can read the Bible literalistically and uh, literally, in, and if we do so in that way, we will actually miss something because he literally says anything. But what does he mean by anything? Jesus connects this with asking for two things. Firstly, in my name. But secondly, he asks, so that the Son can bring glory to the Father. Notice that, he says, ask for anything in my name and I will do it, so that the Son can bring glory to the Father. Jesus is focused on God's glory. His prayer is that everybody knows the Father. That's what makes his heart tick. And so when we see things Jesus' way, we will pray that things will happen that will glorify God. That your friends at school 
will know God, that your relatives, your friends at work, the people in the community group, the person who lives next door or across the street. Because when they hear of Jesus, God is glorified. The Father is glorified. That is what we need to be asking. It's a little bit like that line in the Lord's Prayer. Let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You see, if we want to ask for anything, we, we actually need to see the world Jesus' way. We need to see what success really looks like, what greatness really looks like. We need to see the spirit of Christ. Because then we will pray that God's will will be done and we'll expect that he'll answer that prayer. And if we really have at our heart the same thing that's at the heart of Jesus, then we'll be praying about what he started saying today to the disciples. What did he say? Trust in God. Trust also in me. Because, you know, the greatest miracle in life happens when a self-obsessed person takes off their crown and lays it at the feet of Jesus. When a person says, I'm no longer going to rule my world, I'm going to let Jesus rule me. That is more supernatural than walking on water. It's more supernatural than healing a blind person. Because when a person goes from serving themselves to serving Jesus, it is the greatest work in the world. Because when that happens, people get certainty for eternity. They can know for sure that Jesus has gone away to prepare a place for them in their father's house. They can know that Jesus will come back to bring them to be with him. And they can know for certain the peace that overcomes any of their troubles. That is certainty, and I'm sure of it.